Before we get into today's show, I just want to add a quick reminder that any donations given to our nonprofit, Better Burma, will be shared directly with those in Myanmar who need it most. Any and all donations will make such a difference right now. Go to insightmyanmar.org donation if you would like to contribute, or stay tuned to the end of the episode and hear more options. With that, let's get into the show. My guest today uh, is a recurring guest, uh, Mike Hack, that we already interviewed with regards to the Burma Bill and subsequently also the NDAA. And today we're going to be doing a follow-up episode on the recently uh, announced and and even more recently uh, activated U.S. sanctions against the Myanmar Oil and Gas Enterprise, or MOGE. Uh, so, Mike, thank you for, for coming on and, and bringing this to our attention. And uh, would you like to just give a brief uh, explanation of yourself and your work uh, for our audience. Sure. Yeah. Thanks so much. I really uh, appreciate the opportunity to chat with you again. Um, So I'm Mike. Uh, I live in Washington, D.C. And I've been sort of on and off doing solidarity work with with Burma uh, since 2002 when I first went to Mesot. and uh, right now I'm working for something called Myanmar Policy Institute. Spent two years uh, getting the Burma Act passed. Now that it's passed, um, I've been mostly looking at things around that could be considered implementation, um, MOG sanctions being part of that, um, but also uh, through the long uh, drudgery that is the uh, appropriations process in the U.S. Congress. I've been spending a lot of time watching that because uh, the U.S. passes laws uh, and then later decides whether or not it's going to spend money on those laws. So it's it's, a, it's quite a process. Anyway, so that's that's what I've been up to. Um, thanks for having me on the show. Our pleasure. And um, yeah, definitely like going back to when when we were discussing the Burma Act and when we were looking at the you know NDAA provisions, uh, I remember the frustration of of having to wait very long periods of time to see whether Congress was actually going to do something, um, and and whether the the things that Congress talks about, you know, making a certain amount of money available for a certain goal, is actually going to eventuate in terms of hard cash, or whether those are more, you know, theoretical spendings uh, that may or may not trickle down. So I I, I share the frustration, but. I'm looking at this article um, that that you've written, this this opinion piece that you've written for Frontier Myanmar, 
and it's entitled New U.S. Sanctions on MOGE, Hitting the Generals Where It Hurts, question mark. So let's let's talk about that 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 question mark. First and foremost, what actually do these sanctions provide for? Yeah, excellent question. So basically what, what they say is that um, U.S. entities cannot provide financial services to Myanmar oil and gas enterprises or any sort of subsequent um entity, you know, like MOG can't just like change their name and then get exempted. So um, what that means basically is that U.S. banks can't make loans, they can't make transfers to MOG. That might sound like, okay, not that big a deal, but it is actually a pretty big deal. Um, when you think about MOG is the biggest um, source of foreign exchange for the the Myanmar military, and um, the the biggest trade, even even today, to the best that we know, um, most trade, even that the that the happens from Myanmar, and even that the Myanmar military itself is it is engaged in, happens in dollars, right? The dollars are a very very important currency, and so by cutting this off, um, it. It, it provides a hurdle um, to the Myanmar military to fund itself. Mm. It's yeah. not going to be a game-changing hurdle, and we can sort of get into why, but it does trip them up. Um, so I think it's a good thing. It's a very good thing. I know the State Department has been thinking about this, looking at this, thinking very hard about this. Um, they had to get the politics in line before it happened. Uh, we can talk about what I mean by that as well, um, but um, you know, I think I think it's a big deal. Um, the The biggest deal uh, with MOGE sanctions actually happened when the European Union sanctioned MOGE, which led to the Bank of China actually putting the money uh, that would have gone to MOGE um, through the Shui, you know, pipeline, um, and they put it into um, escrow. So the the Myanmar military wasn't receiving that money. Um, and that was the Bank of China complying with European mm -hmm. Union sanctions, because uh, they're afraid of the, uh, you know, they didn't want to make the Europeans angry, basically, or have to transfer things through European banks. So it can have broad effects. Um, the way these sanctions were written, though, it the, we, the U.S. definitely wrote them with Thailand in mind and, you know, to allow Thailand to sort of to punch as hard as we can toward the MOGE, but allow Thailand, you know, PBT, POSCO, others to, and, but I think particularly Thailand was the concern here, to, to um, you know, allow them to continue to get gas there uh, from Myanmar. Um, and... Unfortunately, that means they continue payments, um, mm. but not in dollars. So it it is uh, it is significant. So there's quite a lot here that I that I do want to sort of touch on because, you know, to, to you this may be very obvious, but I think to a lot of people, myself included, there are a lot of dimensions in what you've just said that that are very very significant. So the first thing that I want to look at is the state of Myanmar uh, petrochemicals because. Mm. Um, or, or fossil fuels, because we saw 
over a year ago, the withdrawal of Chevron from the United States, Total from France, and Woodside from Australia. Uh, these were major uh, fossil fuel extraction companies that were saying, hey, we're going to wind down our businesses. I think Total was the most aggressive. From memory, they said it's six months to dismantle. And you know, I reached out to a contact of mine who actually used to work for Chevron back before all of this. And, and he said, well, the, the thing is, the dismantling process is going to be very, very slow. Um, and if what we're hearing from other analysts with regards to the amount of oil uh, or gas available in the Yadana gas fields is true, what these companies may have been announcing is not actually a, a moral position. It was just them saying, well, you know, the, the gas fields where we're currently operating are running dry and we don't want to open up new operations to last for the next 10 years in a war-torn country. So with, with regards to the petrochemicals, was Myanmar really making that much of that of that industry in the immediate sort of precedence, like throughout 2022, 2023? Well, I think, yes. So, so the best that I've, you know, been able to get intelligence on this, like it, it continues to. Um, the question is about in the years to come. Um, you're right, there has been a dip. Um, but my understanding is that it's not, hasn't been significant um, yet. I mean, I guess it depends on what you mean by significant. But um, the real, you're right that the 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 gas fields are, are running dry. Um, but you, the dramatic kind of drop off hasn't happened yet. Okay. Um, Total did it. Um, you know, they Total actually pulled out. It sold its shares. Um, Chevron has not. Like Chevron is still uh, owns their shares in the uh, in the Yadana uh, pipeline. Is Chevron still in Myanmar? Like, are there Chevron yes. employees in the country? I don't know that, but they they still own. You know. It, now it's actually the majority share, although PPT is the controlling owner, from what I understand. I don't understand why that is the arrangement. But um, the uh, what well, basically what happened is when when Total pulled out, they sold their shares. They just split them proportionally between the other uh, three owners, which is PPT, MOGE, and uh, and Chevron. Um, Chevron then agreed to sell their shares to a Canadian company, um, but that deal has not gone through. It hasn't been finalized. So Chevron still has their shares, um, and they're still making money off the pipeline. Um, why it hasn't been finalized, I'm not sure, but it might partly have to do with the fact that the it's an evolving regulatory environment, right? Like the, mm. the U.S. sanctions, you know, I think for a long time, the U.S. has been sort of signaling that it was going to do these sanctions. Um, and I don't know if that complicated the deal or what. But yeah, Chevron's still in there. But so on, just on this, like what what we saw, you know, to, a year ago or two years ago, within the actual fine print, uh, not even all that fine, actually, within the print of, you know, the Burma Act that, yeah, Congress was passing back and forth, and then later in the NDAA, there were these significant slices cut out to make provisions specifically for U.S. companies, namely Chevron, to do business with MOGE. It, it almost feels like Congress was protecting MOGE in order to protect the the interests of large 
um, U.S. companies. Um, but, you know, maybe, maybe that's just a very cynical view. Yeah, on my I, well, I would say, yeah so it's not so black and white. I, I hear what you're saying. Um, so it went back and forth. Like um, the version of the Burma Act, so that many versions of the Burma Act passed the House of Representatives before the Senate finally agreed to one that was uh, in the NDAA. So it's the backdrop here. The One of the versions that passed the House, the one that actually passed in a House version of the NDAA, it had very strong language about MOGE um, and sanctioning it. Um, but that, that language was watered down uh, for the final version. Um, and it's true. I mean, Chevron was lobbying against it for a certain period of time. Um, for much of when I was sort of banging my head against the wall with all these other grassroots people to try and get the Burma Act through the Congress, um, you know, we heard from offices, Democrat and Republican, that, you know, Chevron or, you know, different organizations that, that work for Chevron um, had been lobbying against it or had been lobbying for an exemption. And the, the sort of tension between that and the people who said, no, you know, why would we give you an exemption? Um, was one of the many tensions that, that uh, you know, slowed the bill down. Um, but, you know, at the end of the day, like the, the corporate lobby did eventually change their mind on this. They, they, you know, I got confirmation from various sources. They, they basically told state and treasury that they were, they didn't mind if they sanctioned MOG. I think partly for the reasons you're saying, like it's it's running dry anyway. You know, it's a. I think I you know I'd hope at least reputational liability mattered. I mean, maybe they don't care what I say, but a bunch of Congress members like banging their fists about it. You know, it, it's you know oil companies benefit a lot from their relationship with U.S. Congress. Mm -hmm. You know, and the U.S. you know security apparatuses around the world. So, and diplomatic cover, et cetera, et cetera. So you know, it it, it does matter if you know, a lot of Congress people are kind of yelling at them. Mm. Um, and so I, uh, you know, I don't think this would have passed if, if basically like the corporate lobby hadn't just been like, okay, we don't care anymore. Like do what you want. Um, but, um, you know, it's significant in that it, it trips up the regime in those, those, those small ways. And so, let, let's also talk – another really important point that you brought up is the dollar. Now, yeah. um, the the military – you know, we've had Sean Tonell on talking about the, the business practices of the military and, and how they literally yeah. own the printing presses and, and they make all this money. But they can only print Burmese chat. And right. the international community doesn't really like trading in that. So, sure. um, so the military literally needs to acquire U.S. dollars – in order to purchase the weapons, the jet fuel, the bombs, the missiles, the helicopters, the jets, and all that. And you're saying that this industry is the primary source by which the Burmese military acquires US dollars? Is that correct? I from what I understand, it's it's the like largest single source. Okay. So so this this then is a very important question, right? Do does sanctioning MOGE even if it's not necessarily the biggest earner for the military as such, mm. does sanctioning MOGE still 
play a significant role in limiting their access to the type of currency that they can use to buy additional sort of weapons and ammunition and, and things of that nature from their allies. Yeah, it's going to trip trip them up. Okay, so you okay, you said trip them up a couple of times so far, right? Okay, so, so that, okay, well, I knew you, by that. That's a good question. Yeah. I mean, yes, it's going to be harder for them to to get dollars, and yes, that will be harder for them to buy the things that they need for weapons of war. Um, yes, you sound like there's a butt coming. I mean, it's not a but. It's just not, you know, I don't think it's going to be enough that it's going to, like, tip the balance or anything like that. I mean, it's good that the U.S. is doing this. I think that I think that the U.S. is, is I think this was a very well thought out policy, and I have a lot of respect for the people who actually finally implemented it. Um, I just, you know, it's hard because I spend, like, all day with activists and stuff, mm-hmm. and I, I always hear the, like, aha, if we just did this, then the regime would fall or whatever. So I feel very... Uh, cautious about speaking in that sort of hyperbole i mean this is this is a good step and look and i definitely respect that like accurate information realistic information is much more valuable than feel good information yeah um and so understanding what this legislation and will and will not do is important and and so on that um so in in the realm of reality where we unfortunately have to live the U.S. government saying we're going to sanction X, Y, Z does not actually essentially stop its its operations. Now, let's take an extreme, North Korea. Yeah. In North Korea, you can sanction anything and anyone, and the state will get people to change their names. They will issue them new birth certificates. Companies will be dissolved. New companies will be created, and sanctions are routinely skirted. Mm. Um on that sort of scale from sanctions actually doing what they're intending to achieve and sanctions doing nothing because they only apply to entities that can be readily dissolved and renamed, how how bad is Myanmar? Um, that's an interesting question. I mean, I would say that this sanction is is in the realm of like pretty serious. That it especially when you when you at least compared to the other ones that we've dropped on Myanmar. Um, you know, the MFTB sanctions, I think also, you know, have blocked the flow of dollars, um, uh, and at least have caused people to have to change accounts and things like that. Um, from what I understand, the U S intelligence is following this, although I don't have access to that kind of information. I just kind of hear whispers. Mm. Um, and sometimes when I talk to the people who do talk to us intelligence, I'm like, are you sure the source wasn't just this guy I also talked to? And then they kind of turn red. So it's like a, it's sort of a small world of information out here, unfortunately. Um, but you know, how serious are these sanctions? I mean, I think this is a serious step by the, by the U S um, I don't think Burma is the top priority of the United States in the region, right? Like, I think our relationship with Thailand is much more important to the U.S. I'm not saying it should be or shouldn't be. I mean, and the and I think that's kind of colored this whole, um, you know, discussion the whole time. But also domestic interests. I mean, in the in the paper I talk about, um, or the article I talk about, you know, when I was just came back from Mesot, you know, everybody had been asking for sanctions. So 
I got involved in the boycotts. I actually, you know, me and a few other students like led a boycott that ended with this major U.S. company to stop sourcing from Burma. And then we lobbied for the sanctions. Um, and, you know, at that time, I didn't really know what all was happening behind the scenes. And at that time, a much earlier, you know, Burma-related piece of legislation was held up by by Chevron, um, you know, for these exact reasons. And at that point, they were able to kind of convince activists that, well, you know, if Chevron is to pull out, um, the Chinese company would just take over. Nobody wants that. Blah, 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 blah. Now, like, understanding what I understand about geopolitics, like, I don't think there was any way in hell, like, the, a U the U.S. I don't think Chevron would have thumbed its nose at the U.S. in that way by selling its shares to a Chinese company. You know, like, it's, like, mm. this sort of silly. But it was, like that was like the kind of fear mongering that that was used for everybody to be like, okay, whatever, let's not go after Chevron. Um, and, and they let them go. And what they did is they went after like the most vulnerable people in Burma, basically, like they, you know, we ended up just having a blanket ban on apparel imports at the time apparel was quickly growing industry in Burma. And, uh, and the U.S. was about 50% of Burma's apparel market. At that point, like the U.S. was still very rich compared to the rest of the world. The U.S. was still very rich compared to the rest of the world. But China hadn't really come into its own as a market. Um, and other countries hadn't. So the, the U.S. share of the global apparel market was huge. And it was literally 50% of Burma's exports. And so it was devastating when, when the U.S. put in those sanctions. And I played a role in that. I mean, like it... like. 80,000 people, or sorry, um, you know, what did, I can't even say that, but a lot of people lost their jobs, you know, and they're young women. Um, and I don't think it really hurt the regime in any way, partly because the regime was really profiting, I mean, quite a bit off the energy exports, um, which was like politically impossible to touch back then. Um, so I think that just the way that the U.S. has been willing to go after the energy sector, the way that, I mean, Chevron may have finally kind of just, you know, shrugged its shoulders and said, okay, do what you want to the, to treasury and state. But the fact that it didn't come without pressure, I mean, the pressure was there. And, and the fact that the U.S. is willing to be a little bit rough on its own oil company, um, I think is significant. I mean, it's very easy. There's, there's a machine of sort of good information about, uh, I, I learned the word semiotic loop recently, where like, you know, <laughs> people give good news from Burma, you know, think tanks and, and sort of like a lot of people in the US like repeat it and then it gets broadcast back into Burma and it often doesn't mean all that much, you know, like, and, and I think even the, the 2003 sanctions were sort of like that. It was like this big fanfare. And then later we'd like, ban the financial uh, services, which was a big deal. But, you know, all it really did was like take a bunch of people with jobs and didn't in any way really hurt the regime's coffers. Like, in this sense, like, we are um, targeting, you know, what is a significant revenue source for the regime? And, uh, and it is, um, you know, it's, it's not cost free for the population. I mean, I do think there'll be a slight bump in inflation, but it's not nearly as 
as costly as, as these other sanctions were. And it, uh, and it's something that the U S can adjust as it, as it goes. Um, and so, um, I don't know. I think it's the best of a lot of bad options that the U S had. Um, I don't know. And so I, I do think it's something to celebrate that it happened. It is definitely a result of grassroots pressure. Um, I mean, you sound very hesitant to to celebrate this. And when, look, when it comes to apparel sanctions, that's definitely something that I would like to look at because it's something that I did follow uh, as it was happening and then as it was quietly unhappening. Like um, in 2003? No, no, not 2003. I mean, I mean post, um, post-coup. Yeah, right, right. When people are calling for it and then they sort of back People are calling yeah. for it. A lot of companies moved out of the country and then a right. lot of countries quietly moved back in and... We had calls from from different groups. So uh, that's, you know, the way that sanctions have generally been utilized, especially in the context of Myanmar and and countries like it, I think it's an important story to cover. It's out out of the scope of our discussion today, but it's an important story to cover because I think, you know, you're talking about semiotic loop. I I just describe that as everybody wants to feel informed, but nobody wants to do the amount of research necessary to actually be informed. And this... This creates a market for people to sell you simple narratives that make you feel good, but Absolutely. unfortunately, that amplify bad decisions and bad understanding of circumstance. And it, you know, it spirals. And I would say, especially, maybe not especially, because things people know lots of a lot about, they still make bad decisions about. But like yeah. the um, it, it, with something like Burma, which is sort of a low information environment, right? Like it's it's. It, it just feels like that can be heightened at times, you know, where, it, where you get a little bit of information um, and, and big decisions are made on that. Yeah. So I'm looking at the article that you've written and yes. uh, what I'm finding very interesting is, so number one, you're mentioning the relationship with the Thai government and, and the pressure yeah. that the Thai are putting on this. Now, we had uh, Guillaume on uh, some time yeah. ago to speak about the state of the Myanmar power grid. Yeah. Um, which we which we done twice, and I asked him, you know, when is the system going to collapse? And he estimated that Myanmar electricity as a thing will probably collapse around 2030, because yeah. the the gas that the Myanmar regime was hoping to utilize to expand uh, their power grid with new gas power stations, a lot of that has preemptively been earmarked for export to Thailand. There's nothing that they can or they're willing to do about it. Even the military yeah. is not willing to renege on the deal with the Thai government. Um, so how how much are the Thai dependent on this? I mean, that's a good question. People say, you know, there's radically different numbers out there about it. Um, probably somewhere between 10 and 17%. Other people say Thailand's a a net energy exporter. They don't really need it. You know, they've already kind of figured out. I don't, you know, I, I think the thing is, is like, and this, you know, this is a prediction. It's not something that can be said for sure. So I understand why it's not at all reassuring for Thailand, but we tried to make the argument that Thailand could do essentially what China did where they keep getting the you know the the resources across the pipeline but they don't pay anymore and they blame 
the rest, you know, like, and, and, you know, that's sort of the best of all worlds, you know, like it's, it's like, um, you know, bank of China can say, Hey, we're just complying with the EU sanctions. Yeah. Um, but you know, there's no reason for the regime to want to cut the China's access. Right. I mean, it's, they, they, and so we tried to make the argument that Thailand could do the same thing. You know, I, you know, it, if I was a Thai minister or something, you know, I want to keep those factories along the Thai-Burma border running. Um, would I be compelled by that? I don't know. But that was the argument that we tried to make. And I think that's, I think it's fair. And I think one other thing that you've written with regards to Thailand, which stood out to me, was that the a two-parter, right, which comes back to what we spoke about earlier with regards to currency, the Thai government wants to move away and start using baht in an international trade capacity, which mm. you know makes sense. It, it gives the currency prestige and stability and all that sort of stuff. But also, moving away from what you know, whether whether we're going to be sort of conspiratorial, or whatever, what is commonly referred to as the petrodollar. Um, mm as the very much US heavily, heavily recommended standard for, for petrochemical trade um, is, is an interesting move, but it means that if the Burmese regime is selling to the Thai, they're not receiving US currency as an influx. And in fact, what you yeah. say in the article here is that because the sanctions um, prohibit US entities from doing anything with MOGE, that also means that if the Thai government wanted to send U.S. currency to the to the the junta in Myanmar uh, in compensation, the U.S. financial institutions that would normally have to process those transactions are legally barred from doing so. Yeah. Meaning that it, it's actually very likely, or it's, it sounds based on what you've written in this in this Frontier Myanmar article, it's very likely that this will seriously slow the flow of U.S. currency to. Uh, to the junta is that is that a fair assessment yeah it it seriously slow i think is a is a good way to put it yeah okay so because you 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 still sound very hesitant <laughs> to to celebrate and again i appreciate that you are not trying to oversell something personality i don't know i just <laughs> um I think it's partly just where I'm situated in in the Burma world these days. I I I'm very very hesitant to to make some kind of giant like this is going to crash mm. the regime. Like like an article basically saying that about something has come out like every week since the coup. <laughs> you know what I mean? Yeah. And everybody shares it and everybody celebrates and like and every, and people take it mostly it's ignored you know occasionally like i don't know the washington post ran something a1 above the fold recently basically to that tune about 1027 um i don't know i'm i'm just sort of like I'd, uh, i'm hesitant to get on that train you know like i think it's good to push for the things that we're pushing i'm glad that we're doing that pushing um this will deny the regime, you know, current dollars, which is very important. Um, but yeah, I mean, it's it's sort of just my kind of the way I 
I guess what you're part of the reason I'm reacting the way I'm reacting is that I want people to think it's good. I want people to understand like the politics about mm. how something like this happens. Like what what all is at stake? I mean, like you have basically like grassroots in the US, um, pretty diverse coalition of people that includes um uh, you know, the religious folk, like the the Baptists particularly, um, you know, you have human rights groups, you have the influence of of corporations over the U.S. government, and you have the U.S.'s concern about its, its allies. Um, and all of those things kind of boil together to make a decision like this, which I think it's, I really want people to understand that that's, those are different inputs into the U.S. system. That's how we make decisions. Um, we now I'm speaking as if I'm the sovereign, <laughs> which I'm not. I'm just a guy. Um, but you know that's how the United States government makes decisions. Mm-hmm. Um, it's multifaceted. Um, and yeah, so so I think this is big. I mean, the they're still going to find ways to get dollars. They're still going to find ways to you know, fund themselves. Um, but this is good. I mean, I, I also have I've been sort of talking to folk and, and thinking a little bit. I do think the regime was in the 90s and early 2000s, especially, you know, after the sort of the apparel boom was crushed. I mean, it a lot of the foreign exchange came from and it's still a lot still comes from. It's just the regime is a little bit more diversified than it used to be um, in terms of trade. But I do think this is extremely important. Um, so I don't know. Yeah, sorry. I, don't, I guess I should sound more enthusiastic. I'm enthusiastic, but I worry about what the enthusiasm from the United States does when you think about this sort of like semiotic loop. And uh, and I, I just worry about that. I mean, look, I, I'm enthusiastic. I think, I think we here at Inside Myanmar are enthusiastic lately uh, yeah. because we've had – you know, a slew of people coming in talking about the massive successes uh, of and subsequent to Operation 1027, which you do mention in your article and, and you are much more, I think, uh, conservative in your in your outlook. Um, and, and, you know, I respect that. Like no one, no one can, no one can predict the future. Um, yeah. But, but we, we've, we've been looking at an uptick of positive news. And, and the important thing here is that the uptick of positive news has largely been internal to Myanmar. It has not been dependent on the aid or the goodwill of, of foreign nations. But this definitely feels like this is a, a, a really nice little Christmas gift almost because, you know, for, for all of the uncertainty, what you what it sounds like you've ultimately said to me here today is that MOGE is one of, if not the largest sources of foreign currency for the junta. It has been sanctioned by the European Union. It has now been sanctioned by the United States. And corollary to that, the ability to convert gas, not just into a an internationally sellable, exportable product, but to convert it into US dollars in particular has additionally been hindered because even sales to to third party countries now are going to have to work through more layers yeah to to turn into US dollars and and considering what other people have been telling us 
that you know the military desperately needs to get helicopters, jet fuel, replacement parts, things like that, all of which would be sold in US dollars, um, or most easily sold in US dollars. It seems like this is a very significant step that is going to um, like it's hamstringing the military at the worst possible time for the military to face yet another issue. Like they're losing on all fronts and now they've just been cut off from a lot of the U S currency that they, that they depend on. Like I understand and I respect that you want to be re- realistic and that you want to be moderated and that you don't want to oversell something and you don't want to give people false hope. And I, I think that's a wonderful approach to take a very professional approach. But it really seems to me everything that you've said today is just saying the generals have woken up, seen this news, and just started probably crying quietly in the corner. Would, would that be a fair picture to paint? Um, I think I think probably that this was anticipated. I don't know for a fact. Um, so they would I have think- known this is coming. Yeah, I mean that the US has been talking about it ever. It's talking about it before the coup. <laughs> like um but the US so, talks a lot. Sure, the US talks a lot, yeah. Yeah. And so I mean they're 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 moving things around. I mean, I think it's bad. It yeah, it's another headache for the generals. Mm. Okay. Okay. <laughs> I think look, I think it's a very sober look at this issue. Um and, and, look, and definitely look, you've written this article. I, I think it's a very yeah. well written article, uh very accessible. You you know, you don't load it full of highly complicated legalistic and economic terminology. So uh I, I would recommend to all of our listeners um to to check this article. We'll we'll add a link to the article below, but if you want to search for it, it's it's new US sanctions on MOGE, hitting the generals where it hurts. I mean, one thing I've been thinking a lot about is like, you know, and this is this is not actually related, but I think the big question about Myanmar that's that's never addressed, there's never been addressed to me in a way that I find satisfactory, is what exactly does ethnic federalism look like? And if the end goal of the revolution is an ethnically federated, state and things like the you know the democracy charter say that includes like regulating internal migration and and things like that like what what how exactly are all of these identities that are going to be related to states going to be policed and where in the world be it you know northern india northeastern india or you know South Africa during the Pantustans or other experiments with this sort of ethnicized, you know, state making. Like, where has that been successful and satisfactory, and where has it led to a lasting peace? Many listeners know that in addition to running these podcast episodes, we also run a nonprofit, Better Burma, which carries out humanitarian projects across Myanmar. While we regularly post about current needs and proposals from groups on the ground, 
We also handle emergency requests, often in matters that are quite literally life or death. When those urgent requests come in, we have no time to conduct targeted fundraisers, as these funds are often needed within hours. So please consider helping us to maintain this emergency fund. We want to stress that literally any amount you can give allows us to respond more flexibly and effectively when disaster strikes. If you would like to join in our mission to support those in Myanmar who are being impacted by the military coup, we welcome your contribution in any form, currency, or transfer method. Your donation will go on to support a wide range of humanitarian and media missions, aiding those local communities who need it most. Donations are directed to such causes as the Civil Disobedience Movement, CDM, Families of Deceased Victims, Internally Displaced Person, IDP Camps, Food for Impoverished Communities, Military Defection Campaigns, Undercover Journalists, Refugee Camps, Monasteries and Nunneries, Education Initiatives, the purchasing of protective equipment and medical supplies, COVID relief, and more. We also make sure that our donation fund supports a diverse range of religious and ethnic groups across the country. We invite you to visit our website to learn more about past projects as well as upcoming needs. You can give a general donation or earmark your contribution to a specific activity or project you would like to support, perhaps even something you heard about in this very episode. All of this humanitarian work is carried out by our nonprofit mission, Better Burma. Any donation you give on our Insight Myanmar website is directed towards this fund. Alternatively, you can also visit the Better Burma website, betterburma.org, and donate directly there. In either case, your donation goes to the same cause and both websites accept credit card. You can also give via PayPal by going to paypal.me slash betterburma. Additionally, we can take donations through Patreon, Venmo, GoFundMe, and Cash App. Simply search Better Burma on each platform and you'll find our account. You can also visit either website for specific links to these respective accounts or email us at info at betterburma.org. That's betterburma, one word, spelled B-E-T-T-E-R-B-U-R-M-A dot org. If you would like to give in another way, please contact us. We also invite you to check out our range of handicrafts that are sourced from vulnerable artisan communities across Myanmar, available at alokacrafts.com. Any purchase will not only support these artisan communities, but also our nonprofit's wider mission. That's Aloka Crafts, spelled A-L-O-K-A-C-R-A-F-T-S, one word, alokacrafts.com. Thank you so much for your kind consideration and support. Oh, ba, yaranan, da, da, yaranan, 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 da,